Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Infralogic Crossroads podcast, where we discuss interesting aspects of the infrastructure finance investment sectors. Today, I welcome our guest, Chris Stott. He's the CEO and founder of Lone Star Data Holdings, a company which is investigating the possibilities of deploying cislunar services. We're talking about space technology today in the telecom sector. Chris, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, Jonathan, thank you very much for having me. Uh, pleasure to be with you today. I don't think I've covered in my role in the nine years with the company data centers which are based in space. We don't cover a lot of space infrastructure, but it's certainly very interesting. And I can see that there's a lot of movement in that direction. Perhaps you could start off by telling us a little bit about what is Lone Star Data Holdings and what does the company aim to do? No, well, thank you. And excellent question. So we think of ourselves as Lone Star. Well, let's take a step back. What we do is we, we, we look at the two most important things today being us, humanity, you and I, our friends, our families, our colleagues, our societies, and as a close second, the data that we create as a species. And we look at the importance of that data to our technological civilization. And then we look at the threats to that data. And it's our goal is to save humanity's data one byte at a time from the ultimate backup location, which we see as Earth's largest satellite, the moon, and do so leveraging satellite communications technology, information technology, and bringing the best of Silicon Valley and the space sector together to do this, to accomplish this. It's a very interesting concept, Chris. We've talked about this previously, but tell our listeners a little bit about why the moon is an appropriate place to situate data centers. Yeah, absolutely. Because, look, I understand it sounds like lunacy when you first hear about this. Data centers on the moon. But of course, we're doing backup, premium product to secure storage, to complement backup down here on our planet. So we were approached back in 2018 by a series of customers who came to us with a very unique problem set. They said, we must secure and store our premium data. It's regulated data. We operate internationally. We are facing questions on data sovereignty. We're also at the same time facing questions on the security of our networks. We're facing network intrusion. We're facing natural disaster, climate change, human error, and we need somewhere to protect our data. We need to store it in a safe, accessible, and sovereign manner. That's the problem set that we went off to solve for them. So this is demand to pull as opposed to technology push because we're using existing technologies to do this. So we looked underwater at data centers. We looked at jungles, deserts, underneath mountains, on top of mountains, everywhere. But of course, anywhere on our planet is subject to all of these problems network intrusion, malware, ransomware, natural disaster, climate change, and worse, and nation state actors and more. So we started to look outside of the planet. We looked at satellites in low Earth orbit. And by the way, data centers exist in space. Starlink is an incredible program out of SpaceX where every Starlink satellite has 40 Linux servers on board. Starlink is in essence a distributed data center in the sky for satellite transport and data transport layers. Same thing with OneWeb, same thing with Project Kuiper, which is the Amazon competitor to Starlink, and Lightspeed, too, from Telesat that uh, was announced last week in Paris. Data centers and pushing data around in space has been around for a long time. 
but storing data in space away from the natural disasters and, and human, human-made disasters on the planet. So we started looking at low Earth orbit, we looked at geo, we could go through a raft of reasons why, yes, no, costs, etc. And then we started to look at Earth's largest satellite, the Moon. And we started to look at the orbital mechanics, the viewpoints, the use of solar energy, so we can actually generate carbon credits. We're incredibly clean in what we're doing. The use of natural cooling to cool down our devices is tremendous. It's pretty cold in space. It's a wonderful thing. So when we look at the classic cost of a data center, the cost of powering it, cooling it, and communicating with it, when you apply satellite technology to that and the environment of space and the incredibly unique environment on above and below the moon, it's tremendous. It's a f- the moon is so good for this, Jonathan. If it wasn't there, we'd have to build it. It's really fascinating, Chris, and you've mentioned several different aspects there that we can we can talk about a little bit further. But essentially what you're saying is that the, the location for clients is often an issue for, for data security purposes. The location of a data center is also important in terms of how expensive it would be to cool it and to produce electricity for it. So this is really a kind of technology and, and an initiative that looks to solve many different problems at the same time. Tell us a little bit more about some of those data restrictions in terms of where people can locate data. No, well, thank you. It goes down to data sovereignty laws. Over 104 nations have that now, and even states within those countries have that. So, you know, we think of a data localization, data residency. It's where regulated data cannot legally be stored outside the boundaries or outside the border of your country. For example, American data can't be stored outside of America, no matter how good the data center overseas is. So you must do this within terms of your sovereignty. Now, high seas, maybe, but space, absolutely. We have, gosh, 30 years of precedent and satellite law, space regulation, spectrum regulation, where you can actually do data sovereignty. You can have one satellite owned and flagged and licensed by one nation flying articles and equipment for a third nation under their law. So data sovereignty works in space, and up and around the moon, it works even better. Under the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, all the way through the Liability and Registration Conventions and the Artemis Accords today, the moon is not sovereign. So when you land on the moon, say you land an American lander on the moon, which is about to happen, by the way, in November, the first one, Intuitive Machines is leading the charge back for the United States. Fantastic company, tremendous people. India was on landed on the moon about three weeks ago. The Japanese are about to land another mission on the moon as we speak, Jonathan. So the moon is getting a very busy place. So you land an American lander on the moon. That's like landing Washington DC on the moon, literally. You don't own the moon, but where you land, you have jurisdiction and continuing regulation and supervision of. And if you have, say, a Japanese rover on that American lander, it's like the Japanese embassy on that lander. If you have a box of electronics from us, it's like having whatever country we license it through. And so the case The legal case for doing this is the first question we ask. Can we legally do this? The hardest thing about getting to space is getting permission, by far. And it's, you know, people think of the the, the rocket science, which is legit, and they think of the science behind the satellites and the storage devices, which is also legitimate. But the hardest thing is getting permission. So you must legally be able to do this, and we've checked those boxes. More so, we've worked that through with regulators, we've worked that through with major law firms on both sides of the Atlantic, and and it works. 30 years of case precedent. So that's how we handle the sovereignty issue. But it is an ever-growing one. Uh, California just passed in GDPR. I believe the state of Florida is about to pass its own. So you've got states within states now having 
these questions of data sovereignty. It's a huge thing as we go forward for anyone involved in the industry. Fantastic. Talk about the the clients and why they would need to store their data somewhere like this as well. I know you probably can't say too much about who the clients are specifically, but what kind of needs do they have and, and what kind of data of theirs are you planning to store in these lunar data centers? No, well, thank you. And this is all demand pull as opposed to technology push. So we're acting on behalf of the market. And this is a premium market. This isn't available to everyone just yet. So the clients we have on both of our test flights, we have a test flight in November with Intuitive Machines, and we're on their second mission in February as well with Intuitive Machines, with the world's first ever data center off planet. And both of those missions are sold out. The capacity is booked. And we're now looking at a series of missions in 2025 in orbit around the moon. And those missions are starting to fill up too. We have hit something in the market where we're hitting these unique pain points. And a lot of the customers are under non-disclosure. So please forgive me if I don't delve into who they are and what they do, because that's their business. And think of us like a banker in that regard. That's their business, not ours. I can, though, and one public customer that we have who has been tremendous, very avant-garde, looking at the future, looking at their future needs, and looking at how they protect the data of their clients. And that's the state of Florida. They have been tremendous as a client. We're the first of 50 states to look at something like this. And you think, well, why would Florida want to do this? Well, how many hurricanes hit Florida? It's a pretty huge state. It's about the size of Great Britain, if not bigger. And we have how many people, million of people living here? And they are the state of Florida are excellent custodians of that data. And they see the risks. They see what's happened in Louisiana with hurricanes and damage to data centers and data loss. So they are looking at the future. They're saying, right, we need to do this. We need to protect our data going forward. Jonathan, here's the other element. We kind of gloss over this in our industry in a good way, right? How much data is created, new data, every day by the human race? We now have figures. It's 2.5 quintillion bytes of information a day. That's about 1,000 petabytes a day, new, every day. That's 365, well, 3.6 million. See, that's why I have a CFO on the math. That's a lot of data created every year. And more than half of that is regulated data. And that data, that labeled data, is doubling every two years. It's an exponential growth in the data that we create as a species. And it's the most valuable thing that we have, more valuable than oil, more valuable than gold. And yet it's incredibly fragile, yet agile. And then how do we back that up? And by backing it up off planet, we do something that the dinosaurs could never do. As Larry Niven said, the dinosaurs became extinct because they didn't have a space program. We've never had this opportunity before. We've never been able to do this. It's only because of the Artemis missions and this huge return to the moon by America and its allies, by Russia and there and China and their allies, sadly, Team Tyranny, we call them. Uh, but Team Freedom is, is quite the package going forward. $93 billion worth of investment in infrastructure. And Lone Star, we see ourselves as a customer, a user of all of that infrastructure. You know, we're like an airline. We don't build the plane, but we buy it. We don't build the engines, but we use them and we lease seats on board, we lease capacity. Same thing like a satellite operator. We don't build the satellites, but we buy them. We don't build the rockets, but we buy them. And the space market is now at that stage for lunar services. It's incredible, but it's a great backup. Imagine it, you look up in the sky every night and you see the moon and you know that your data is safe up there and you can physically see it like a satellite. 
you touched there on a few of the the technological aspects of it, the satellites and the launch missions and things like that. Talk us a little bit through the technology that you'll be utilizing. I think on your press release that you put out back in March regarding the recent funding round, you had an image that looked something like a refrigerator on on stilts standing on the moon. So what, what does a lunar data center look like? How big is it? What kind of infrastructure does it need to survive on the moon? Oh, Jonathan, shame on you. That is the beautiful Nova Sea lander from Intuitive Machines, granted with their permission. And that's an incredible lunar lander in itself. Yeah, so are we, we attach as a hosted payload to the lunar lander. And these landers provide power and communications and thermal management. Our payload itself has thermal management. So in data center terms, think of the lunar lander as the gray space. Or think of the satellites that we're getting ready to procure to go in lunar orbit as the gray space of a data center that handles power, thermal management, communications. And then the white space is our payload. Those are our racks, for want of a better word. And so, you know, we're using SSDs, no moving parts, high capacity SSDs, space qualified. And you see SSDs in space. Well, don't forget the Mars helicopter, as we speak, is flying around in a tremendous radiation environment on the surface of Mars using a Fison SSD, I think about a terabyte on that one. And we're running on a Snapdragon chip running Ubuntu Linux. And this is the most amazing thing. We start to take all of the advances in information technology in data centers, in IT, in software and equipment, and we start applying that for use in space. Wow, it is an exponential leap forward. It's actually highly disruptive because normally in space, we're very conservative and we're conservative too. Don't get me wrong. But the idea being that, you know, oftentimes like the Mars rover that's at the moment is running on a 2003 MacBook chip, an old Intel chip, right? And so that's quite advanced. The advances in information technology haven't quite made it to space yet. And we are riding that wave of innovation. And it's tremendous for us because it means, for example, our flight in February, this is the first ever data center of planet. We are operating a micro semi polar fire chip now made by microchip. It's an FPGA field programmable gate array. And we've got that running eight terabytes of storage from Faisal. That's our payload with motherboards and everything else built for us by a company called Skycorp, who've done a tremendous job for us. That will be more than 10 times the capacity that NASA's ever flown in its history. What about the energy source for these data centers once they're on the moon, once they've landed safely and they're in position? I would assume it's solar energy? Yeah, it's that massive ball of fusion in the sky, which cracks me up by the way. People go, oh, fusion power is impossible. I'm like, uh, have you looked at that big orange thing in the sky? That's fusion. And that's where we get our energy from, as does every single satellite and space station in space for the last 60 years, bar a couple of nuclear things from the Russians, right? I mean, so we're solar powered and solar power and battery. It is actually technically a tier four for the Uptime Institute. We have two sources of independent power. And as we go forward in the future, uh, NASA and others are repeating what was done during the Apollo era and putting radiothermal electric generators, RTGs up there, which will work through the lunar night. The Chinese have an RTG running at the moment. They've been on active on the south lunar far side for 1,760 days continuously now. People forget that they landed in January 2019. The little rovers and doing stuff and doing great science, but they're there. And that was Chang'e 4 mission. They've got Chang'e 5 actually brought things back from the moon. So it's a very active place. Because what we're realizing is, is the Earth-Moon system, our entire economy on our planet, reaches out into space and it's connected via satellite and it's now reaching out to the Moon as a natural extension of the global economy. Because we can provide services to the global economy, leveraging the unique advances of our largest satellite, the Moon. 
So you mentioned the energy part there, and you know I'm thinking again about the physical device that you've got situated on the moon at this point. Talk to us a little bit about the connectivity with Earth. You know, some of our listeners might not be too familiar with you know the speed to transfer data from satellites to Earth and then from the Earth to satellites to the moon. What's the what's the kind of data connection like with the moon, and how is that going to work with the data? Is I would assume that this is probably going to take a little bit longer than your edge data center around the corner. So you're not going to be storing your TikTok videos and your YouTube videos there. Oh, absolutely. No, we're not, we're not doing hot data. So no one's doing microsurgery or playing video games with what we have. This, this is premium storage, uh, what we call bright data versus dark data. This is accessible storage 24-7. And it is 400,000 kilometers away. So it's an 800,000 kilometer round trip. And so latency is actually our friend. We love latency because it helps us with encryption. It means we're not using TCP IP. And now look, so Jonathan, listeners, let's send a signal to the moon, have it processed and returned to us. Okay, you ready? Okay, got the stopwatch going. Okay, let's go. I'm gonna hit send and here we go. Send one, two, three, boom, we're done. We've sent a signal to the moon, it's been processed and it's come back in less time than it takes Netflix to turn on the movie for you. Yeah, it's 1.4 seconds each way. That's the propagation of a radio wave in a vacuum. That's the latency. It's very quick, right? And it's a long way away, but very quick, but it means that we're more secure. And we're using radio spectrum for the first ones. These first missions with intuitive machines, and there's other providers going back to the moon. There's Firefly, there's Astrobotic, there's Draper Labs working with iSpace. There's a whole bunch of these people that's part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, CLIPS program. You know, it's a, a small program, 2.8 billion, billion here, a billion there, right? We're soon talking real money. But it's a fantastic program that NASA has to commercially take things to the moon. Same way SpaceX commercially takes people to the space station. And by the way, SpaceX and Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, won contracts to build lunar landers. And this week, SpaceX successfully tested the engines of their lunar lander, which is much bigger and involving Starship and incredible things as they go forward. So everything's changing. So radio spectrum to the moon. These first missions, uh, these test missions that we're doing, we're part of, we're just one of many payloads on board these incredible missions that Intuitive Machines and others are flying for NASA. And they're using some S-band. So it's, it's, it's a thin pipe backwards and forwards to the moon, similar to what they had during Apollo, maybe slightly better. But as we go forward with our work, we have our own ITU filings, International Telecommunications Union, the most powerful organization that Dan Brown has yet to actually write a book about. They look after all global telecoms, an incredible organization of filings and standards and priority of nation states working there to make sure there's no interference in signals. A fantastic group of people at Geneva. We have uh, filing for KA band, X band, and S band. So as we go forwards, in our 2025 missions or 2026 when we do this, we're looking at about eight to 12 gigabits per second continuously each way, 24 hours a day. And as we start to build up capacity and we go into optical communications, we're then looking at terabytes per second each way. Look, we'll never match a cable fiber on the ground, but that's not, not what we're trying to do. We are just providing a unique network that has no connection to the public switching network or regular cable fiber. So to, to prevent against network intrusion, a complete unique network to the moon and back, like a little golden thread of data continuously going 24 hours a day. It's, it's a thing of wonder. But look, we fly helicopters on Mars routinely. The moon is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna regret saying this, but the moon's actually not that hard when it comes to RF and comms. We've been running the deep space network for years and years and years, and that was part of my past when I was a Lockheed. So it's, there are incredible people doing incredible things in both space and IT, and all we're doing at Lone Star is bringing them together and 
buying services from them. Yeah, well, it's certainly very interesting technology, Chris, and we look forward to hearing about your future success with this. Tell us a little bit more about where you are in the development of this technology and and possibly the situation of some of these data center landers. I think you said you had two test flights coming up. What What are the next steps for Lone Star going forward? Thank you. We got a test flight in November with Intuitive Machines. This is America's first return to the moon since Apollo, uh, to to the surface of the moon, that is. America's got a lot of orbiters flying around the moon at the moment, as have the Japanese and the Koreans and the Europeans and others who are doing incredible science and mapping and more. But this is the first time we've intentionally gone back to the surface. And so we're on that mission with Intuitive Machines, the state of Florida is our customer there. We're testing our concept of operations. We will be transmitting the first ever document in human history off planet for storage on the moon and pulling back a different document as well. So refresh, restore, we've got onboard storage on the lander itself. We then take it a step further in February where we've actually got the first physical, it's about a kilogram, I said the eight terabytes in the FPGA chip. And that's both missions sold out. And there we are doing a full data center test, disaster recovery as a service, DRAS. We're doing a full test there. We're doing edge processing as well. I mean, we are at the ultimate edge, which is fantastic. And we're doing that. And then from there, we take those results and we go further in uh, late 25, 26. We are looking at a series of lunar orbiters, satellites around the moon, full of petabyte level storage. And here's the unique thing, Jonathan, too, with a great partner like Intuitive Machines, a great provider like Intuitive Machines. We're able to test our data as we go to the moon, in orbit around the moon, and then when we're on the surface of the moon. So as we grow as a company and buy more services, we're able to test every facet with these test missions. And we've been blessed having Skycorp build the payload for us, fantastic set of people there, and then having Intuitive Machines as really quite an outstanding partner because we trust them to build the Lunar Lander. They're an incredible team of people drawn from all parts of the industry and from NASA itself, working there at uh, just outside the Johnson Space Center in Houston. They have their Nova Sea Lander. They've got two of them ready to go, and they are tremendous. Great team of people to work with. So we've got people who have flown things in space their entire lives. Our team at Lone Star have flown things in space their entire lives and also built data centers their entire lives. And it's exciting. It's fun. We have to keep our head down and stay focused on the goal. Otherwise, we get too excited. And we have to try and make it as mundane as possible to make sure we've covered everything. Test, 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 test again. Not just software loads and everything else, but more. Ubuntu. Canonical have been tremendous with us. We did the first ever software-defined data center up on Space Station back in late 2021. We did a generative art network. Uh, We did that working with Redwire. We took over their 3D printer and partitioned a drive and Ubuntu created a data center load for us of less than, with a kernel of 178 megs. And it worked flawlessly, flawlessly, Jonathan. So, you know, test our software, test our team. And we did machine learning, storage, like I said, a generative art network and more. Been great fun. Some of the things that our listeners find fun are finance and money. So you started this company about four years ago, Chris, put out the press release in March, which talked about a seed funding round for the company. How much do these data centers cost eventually? And how is the business financing these developments and and every step of the way? And will you be looking for future financing? Oh, always. Jonathan, please name a business in the growth stage that doesn't need financing, right? So we were, again, very fortunate. Uh, Scout Ventures led our seed round for us. And uh, we we went to raise 5 million. We were oversubscribed and raised 5.225. And that was tremendous. We would, the Scout Ventures were joined by Seldor, 2Future, Iron Gate, a typical Kitty Hawk. 
and then a series of individuals, remarkable individuals, who took a look at what we were doing. And by the way, VCs only invest in business cases that close. And so they took a look at us. And as Chris Wake said, he said, uh, from Atypical, he said, look, this looks like it's outlandish, but it is, he said in his words, the most stone cold sober business case he'd ever seen. And Brad Harrison at Scout Ventures, within minutes of us talking to him and his team, he was like, I see it, I get it, this is incredible. Because we're taking an existing market with existing pain points and applying a new location that has never before been able to do using existing equipment just to solve pain points of existing customers. And the customers love it. And that's why we're pushing these missions forward. So we did that, we've just finished a pre-series A, we won a Shark Tank at CEO.org part of the uh, YPO organization and thank them. I mean, it was remarkable. And we had a bunch of family funds approach us and said, please, we'd like what you're doing. We'd like to invest. So we just finished our seed and we were oversubscribed. So we did a pre-series A that has since itself been oversubscribed. Uh, We went to raise 500 and we raised 825,000. And we're just heading into our series A, a 30 million series A starting at the end of September, already getting sincere interest there as well. And what about the cost of the data centers themselves? How, how big are these things and, and what does it cost to put one together and then ship it to the moon? If you look at a classic data center on Earth and you were thinking, oh my gosh, I've got a building and I've got all this equipment and all this stuff, that's not what we're doing, right? So for us, a data center is the storage, the compute, and then the infrastructure around that of power, thermal management, and communications. And so we're looking at a classic satellite deployment, a classic lunar lander deployment. And what you'll find is that when we go big, when we get up to the exabyte level stage and more, we have a different set of costs because we're looking at launch vehicles, we're looking at landers, we're looking at antennas, robotics, and equipment. No moving parts, by the way, and no people. This is lights out data centers, right? This is, this is no people at all. This is 24-hour control from the mission control, which is manned 24 hours a day. But... When you start getting to those larger stages of exabyte and even yottabyte up, our costs of building and deploying are, are roughly approximate to the costs of a terrestrial equivalent. However, actually slightly cheaper, ironically, but however, our operational costs, if we've got our numbers right and the experts looking at this for us, are down 93 to 97% lower because we have free power, free communications, and free cooling. It's a totally different way of doing it. That's a significant saving. It's a massive saving, isn't it? No, it really is. Uh, Dr. Mark Matosian is our chief operating officer, and he came out of Google where he'd done, he was a global architect for their data centers and built data centers around the world. Before He also has a PhD in orbital mechanics, an amazing guy, who also then did a whole bunch of space companies too. So a unique combination. And so he's taken, you know, before joining us, he took a long, hard look at this, as did our investors. And they looked at our numbers and our clients and customers and sales channels partners in the data center industry. They all took a look at this and they went, oh my gosh, this works. I'm like, yeah, it works. And the moon is no longer out of reach. The moon is no longer something we did in the 1960s and 70s. You know, it's, it's firmly within reach. I mean, we have the Indians there today. We have everyone else around the moon today. It's fantastic right? 130 missions going in the next 10 years alone, not including our one. Look, we are living in the third decade of the 21st century and things have changed remarkably. And the thing is they've changed remarkably during COVID. An incredible amount of progress was made then on all sides of different, you know, so I said team freedom and team tyranny, sadly. But everyone is going back and this time it's not about flags and footprints or national pride. It's about resources, energy, and applications. And for us, It's an application. The moon just happens to be the best location 
for us to store data within constant line of sight to the earth 24 hours a day and we can meet data sovereignty for any client from any country and do so legally with case precedent. It's a wonderful solution. So it sounds like you've got a wide team of experts there, Chris, designing the technology and implementing the solutions. Who's handling the finance for you and what does that look like? Oh, excellent question, Jonathan. Thank you. As Buzz Aldrin said, no bucks, no buck rogers. And again, we're incredibly fortunate to have a consummate professional heading that up for us. That's Carol Goldstein. She was the person who founded the satellite finance unit at Morgan Stanley. She ran global satellite finance at ING, ran global telecoms investing from cellular to cable to satellite at AB and AMRO. And so her entire career has been focused on space, satellite financing, taking companies from seed all the way through to IPO. And she's based up in New York and is a sort of a leading light on Wall Street for this kind of finance. And we are so lucky to have her. She keeps us firmly in line. But it also means that every conversation we have, we think like a banker. We think like an investor. And that coupled, like as you kindly said, with the space tech and the data center tech that we have on board, it's a fantastic trifecta of a team. It's all very impressive, Chris. And thank you so much for sharing with me and with our listeners today, everything about Lone Star and your plans for these cis-lunar services that you're going to provide. It's very exciting. I found the conversation very interesting and we look forward to hearing more about it as you carry out those first test flights and as the company grows and, and the application for these services increases. Chris, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for your very clear and very passionate explanations of the technology. Jonathan, thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. I hope you find this podcast interesting. We look forward to welcoming you to the next episode of Crossroads here at InfraLogic. So for now, this is Jonathan Carmody, America's editor, signing off.